Welcome back to the author series on Guess What? The Integral Stage. I'm Layman Pascal on behalf of myself, Bruce Alderman, and the unspeakable future of life on Earth. And today we're taking a deep dive into a new work called Crossing the Threshold. This is a philosophical text that highlights the role of imagination, along with a new appreciation of nature and the ontology of feeling, in an attempt to grow beyond the Kantian gap between subject and object with the help of our pals, Schelling and Whitehead. So if that's what sounds like fun to you, and I will attempt to blend the ultra-abstract and the quite silly in a deliberate attempt to make this fun, then you're in luck and I love you. Because today's guest is someone I consider a legit philosopher, and it's also the guy I'd most like to see fistfight Jeremy Johnson in the parking lot outside a rowdy cowboy bar. It's Matt Seagal. Hi, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Great to be with you, Layman. Uh, Really appreciate that uh, intro to the book. It's perfect. And uh Jeremy and I have, I guess, not had enough drinks yet to uh, actually get in a fist fight, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think I think maybe you could take them. <laughs> we're 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 similarly sized. We're in, I, I think we're in the same weight class, um, but uh, I haven't seen him throw down yet, so I can't really prejudge the situation. Uh, the first thing I want to do, having read this book, is to thank you. And and not for the nuanced way that you handle Nietzsche, which is good and I think reflects some of the conversations you and I have explored about the affinity mm-hmm. between Nietzsche and Whiteheadian thought. The thing I actually want to thank you for is a bit more elusive than that. Uh, it seemed to me reading this that it's partly a, a complex confession and apologetic for Matt Seagal as shaman that the text takes a careful analysis and cross-reading of European philosophers and uses that to justify the fact that you're focused on ether, imagination, inversions, the subtle perceptual possibilities of the senses, embodiment within an as-vegetal ecology, descending currents of spiritual energy, and the ways in which godlike entities hold sway at a cosmic level over a reality permeated by quasi-animistic communicative subjectivities and powers. But for me, that's actually not just a Matt Seagal confession. It's also something that's needed by the broader emerging community of shamans, both ancient and new. The intellectual labor that you've undertaken, I think, works to secure and encourage the validity of those modes of being from out of a well-reasoned analysis of the of the dead white European philosophers. And I think that's that's part of what we need in order to legitimize this kind of enterprise and these kinds of people in the contemporary world. So for that, I thank you. Mm. Well, you're you're very welcome, and I thank you for for seeing me or and hearing me, <laughs> because that's exactly that's exactly right. I think um, I wanted to look at my own lineage and inheritance, and uh, obviously, I've been influenced by um, other uh, thinkers and practitioners who aren't just um, dead white guys. There's a few living white guys and gals uh, that I cite as well in this book, but it's mostly dead white guys that I'm engaged in uh, an exegesis and application of. Um, But, you know, for me to make sense of my own perspective on reality, I think I really did need to go deep into that particular lineage um, and show that there are resources here uh, to do the sort of spiritual, embodied, transformative work that um, many people who are, you know, white guys like myself might feel like they have to look elsewhere for. And again, there's uh, riches to be to be found uh, in so many different lineages and, and traditions. But you know, I've I've found it uh, right at home. So uh, thanks for for noticing that. And and I hope 
it's a fresh reading of these thinkers. There's no doubt lots of ink has been spilled on Kant and Nietzsche. Schelling, though most of it in German, so this is you know bringing him more into the English language. Uh, and Whitehead is, we're still waiting. I think we're in the midst of a Whitehead Renaissance and maybe much more ink or whatever we use to write in the rest of the 21st century uh, will be devoted to Whitehead. We'll see. Okay, so there are these people who have proposed a transcendental approach to reality. And these people are pointing at a highly valuable mode of transcendental freedom and transcendental knowledge anchored in a sense of a fundamental split between mind and body, between humanity and nature. And you're proposing, in contrast, a descendental approach that situates philosophy within an organismic, ecological, and imaginal context. So I guess the obvious question is, why do you hate trans people? <laughs> well, in a, in a way, um, we all have to become trans in the sense that we're throwing off a an artificial, uh, not just understanding, an artificial habitus, like an, an artificial way of uh, experiencing ourselves that you could say is culturally constructed. But the whole point of you know the methodology of this book is that culture and nature are so thoroughly entangled with each other um, that you have to be crazy to think you could purify one side or the other of that dichotomy. And so, yeah, the descendental is an attempt to recover all that had been obscured, repressed, and um, and buried in the rationalistic, but even also the the modern empiricist uh, approach, um, which though, you know, empiricists would say, oh, we're just really trying to pay attention to what the senses uh, reveal to us, the information, the data provided to the senses. And so you could think that that's embodied, but it turns out that this construal of sense experience as solely about uh, sort of um, qualia delivered uh, by the external world as a sort of just like uh, uh, assemblage of disconnected parts uh, was kind of the way that Hume would, would talk about sense impressions, right? Um, that this is a really um, abstract way of construing our perceptual uh, embeddedness in, in the surrounding world. And so um, empiricists, just as much as rationalists in the modern Western philosophical tradition, and I mean, we could go back to the ancients as well, though um, I don't think they're quite as disembodied as the modern Western philosophers from Descartes through Hume and Kant and so on. And so by, by inverting this transcendental uh, maneuver, uh, where you know things sort of culminate in Kant with his, his transcendental approach to to philosophy, that there are there are certain cracks in the Kantian edifice that I try to sneak through here, particularly his treatment of um, aesthesis or or perception in his transcendental aesthetic. But the descendental approach is to say, hey, wait a minute, perception. <laughs> this might sound obvious, is an embodied process, and the body is not limited by the skin boundary. Um, if, if we're to take a strictly scientific and, and even fully materialistic, if you want, approach to that question, what is the body? It's the entirety of the universe in space and time, right? Uh, and so I would think once you've understood that, and we, you know, we can go more into why I would make the claim that our, our 
actual bodies, the entirety of cosmogenesis, um, then perception, you know, the, the limits of perception becomes that question becomes totally reconfigured. Uh, and what etheric imagination means is really an effort that I fully admit is nascent and remains to be developed. And just, I haven't fully explored the potential of etheric imagination in this book whatsoever. I'm more just saying, Hey, this is possible for us to perceive as cosmic beings, right? That our capacity to experience is not limited to just the nervous system that we think ends at the tip of our fingers, right? It, it, it penetrates far deeper into space and time. So that's basically what I'm going for with this idea of descendental philosophy. Yeah. Like it, it's much tidier than my term cis-sendental philosophy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, before we dive a little bit more into theory, there are some, I want to call them linguistic housekeeping things that came up mm. for me during the book. Uh, it was partly because I listened to it, read by the Balaburka software. How do you pronounce the word which means of or pertaining to the work of Schelling? Uh, I would say Schellingian. Schellingian? Yeah. Okay. Okay. How did it how did it say that in your uh, software? It, it did it Schellingian is what it came Schellingian. Ooh. I mean, that's a little more elegant, actually. Yeah, I kind of like it. Schellingian. <laughs> I might start using that. Okay. Okay. Second linguistic housekeeping question. Why on earth would someone write the word categorical instead of categorical? Really good question. Whitehead doesn't tell us why he calls it in process in reality, his categorical scheme. But um, I think I suggest in this book somewhere that um, he, the difference between uh, categorical and categorical, I think has something to do with the way that Whitehead's trying to uh, re-embed mind and its categories in real nature, right? Um, Kant's categories are ideal. Whitehead's categories are real, right? What does that mean? Well, one thing that's different about how uh, Whitehead discusses um, the role of, of categories is that, uh, well, first of all, new ones are being created all the time. For Kant, no, they're just this, this fixed table of categories um, I mean, there's four big ones and, and 12 minor ones if you unfold them di each dialectically. Uh, and that's it. There's just that table of categories once and for all to uh, interpret and determine all of our experience. Nothing about experience is ever going to lead us to need to change or update these Kantian categories. It's very different for Whitehead. He does have his table of categories, uh, things like actual entities and eternal objects and so on. But one of his categories is um, what he, he calls them contrasts. And every occasion of experience is achieving, realizing new contrasts. And so he says about this category of contrasts, um, there are indefinitely many new categories that would be brought forth as a result of contrasts achieved aesthetically in any given moment of experience, right? And so categories are proliferating, spilling out of this text process in reality. Um, even after you finished reading it, he would, Whitehead would say, keep going, you know? And so categorial, I think, is his way of suggesting that, uh, yeah, categories are part of and produced by encounters with the real. 
Nice distinction. Thank you. Um, how would you how would you summarize what Kant is best known for? And and relative to that, where do you think his thought was starting to go at the end of his life? Well, he lived uh, long enough to go through at least three phases. I'm not a Kant scholar necessarily, but I think I can detect three phases. I mean, his earlier phase, his pre-critical phase, we could say he was very interested in uh, cosmology and um, he wrote this great text, uh, Universal Natural History and Theory of the Heavens in 1755, which is um, pretty close to a kind of evolutionary cosmology and he's he's really in that text he has to do a lot of work to say to the, the theologians like look look i'm not saying god's not real i'm just saying maybe god's method of creation is a little different than you've been suggesting so far uh maybe god's so perfect and powerful that uh god created um mechanistic uh rules for dead matter uh and set it in motion and all by itself it gave rise to all of these um spinning orbs and stars and creatures like us uh, and so he goes through you know drawing a lot on on newton uh newton's understanding of universal gravitation to say hey all i need is this law and, and maybe one or two others and uh i can give you the entirety of of what we observe um and he even was one of the earliest to suggest this might seem obvious to us nowadays but in seeing the Milky Way, right, this um, band of stars that runs across the sky, uh, sort of crisscrossing with the ecliptic of you know, where the sun and the moon and the planets uh, move through um, the sky, uh, he suggested that this might be a galaxy. He didn't use the term galaxy yet, but there were astronomers had known about um, what they called uh, nebula. Uh, at the time, which were the, these little fuzzy disc-shaped things in the sky. And they're like, mm, what, what is that? Um, and Kant was like, we're inside of one of those. And there's lots more of these Milky Ways. So he used Milky Way plural, like to refer to the fact that the universe is pretty vast. In other words, there are these huge star systems everywhere. Um, and so, you know, he's he was quite a talented, um, insightful, imaginative natural scientist and, and cosmologist, right? But then he reads David Hume, um, who had been freshly translated into um, into English, uh, or sorry, into German um, not long before. And he says famously that he was um, awakened from his dogmatic slumber. And what he means by that is Kant, um, is that uh, Kant had been assuming this sort of naive realism that's baked into the Newtonian perspective on nature, uh, that we can sort of look out there and see causation um, and necessary connection between the bodies that whose motion we're measuring, right? And David Hume, the empiricist, did a uh, just, you know, really precise analysis of his his sensory experience and said, look, when when that billiard ball hits the other billiard ball, I don't see causation. I don't see necessity in the connection. Uh, which unfolds um, as force is transferred from one ball to the other. All that I see is uh, what he he called constant conjunction. And so based on my past experience, he said, yeah, it seems like this ball will do that when it hits that ball. But 
that's not a law. I, I have no basis for the formation of laws, which would be necessary and universal. And Kant took this in and said, yeah, you know what? You're right. And he set to work developing what became called critical or transcendental philosophy. And in order to respond to Hume's criticism, which it might not be immediately apparent, but for Kant, this like um, this this insight of Hume's that causality is is not necessary connection for Kant was potentially going to topple the entirety of natural science, and so Kant's maneuver into this transcendental form of philosophy is basically to say, well. Hume, um, you've taken space and time for granted as just sort of out there. Um, and that, you know, <clears throat> you come to know about space and time through your experience, but actually space and time are these a priori structures. They precede our experience and provide for the possibility of our experience of any objects. And similarly, causality is not something we learn about through experience. It's, it's this necessary structure uh, that's um, pre-installed in our mind, which provides for the very possibility of any experience at all. If we didn't have this category of causality, um, we could make sense of our perceptions. And so Kant's transcendental maneuver is basically to say that the subject doesn't conform to objects in its environment. The objects have to conform to the subject's way of sensing and knowing those objects, right? So we have space and time as um, what he called forms of our intuition. And we have um, the categories I spoke of earlier as the, the concepts that we, that we use to determine, to organize, uh, to, um, to logically relate uh, what comes to us through our sensory perceptions that are preformed by space and time. And so in this way, um, Kant's able to reestablish the logical foundations and the, the metaphysical possibility of science. But the problem is after this Kantian move, scientific knowledge of nature is merely apparent, merely phenomenal, right? We know nature as it appears to us in this lawful way that Newton and other uh, mathematical physicists were describing. What nature is in itself, Kant said, we can't know. He said that this realm of things in themselves or noumena, as opposed to the phenomenal realm, uh, we could mark with a mere X, like an algebraic symbol as a placeholder, just to say, we know that it exists, but we know absolutely nothing about what it is. And the problem though for Kant was that um, he contradicts himself on this point because he says that this X, this, this, noumenal realm of things in themselves beyond the phenomenal or apparent uh, domain that science can know things about. He says it causes our sensory experience. Now, it might not be immediately obvious why this is a contradiction, but the category of causality is only supposed to apply to the phenomenal realm in Kant's scheme. But here he is saying uh, that the noumenal realm is causing our sense experience. And that's uh, one of those cracks in the Kantian edifice. And I'm not the first to notice it. Kantians might say, oh, well, that's not really what he means. And they try to um, you know, make amends for this apparent contradiction. But 
the German idealists who followed in Kant's wake, Fichte um, foremost among them, really made a big deal about this, this contradiction. And it broke open Kant's critical philosophy into a far more speculative form of idealism that followed in his wake. And Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel um, were all the explorers of the domain which opened through this crack, right? And um, I, I chose Schelling in particular to build on uh, for specific reasons. I mean, they're all tall, called German idealists, but I would say that uh, Fichte overemphasizes the role of the ego and Hegel overemphasizes uh, the role of um, abstract concepts and Schelling was known for his natural philosophy, which uh, he carries forward this, this Kantian evolutionary perspective, uh, but he does so in a way that doesn't evacuate nature of mind, right? But that sees nature as to varying degrees ensouled and intelligent, and that what evol evolution is, is the, in a way, the potentization of nature uh, and that the human form is uh, the flowering of this, this process of unfolding potencies through different um, stages of self-organization, right? And so um, Schelling is a precursor to Whitehead in the sense that uh, he's, he's going through the Kantian threshold, like taking this new transcendental method very seriously, but then seeing how in Kant's own philosophy, certain cracks open up and that we need to go further than Kant, right? We can't go back before Kant, but we need to go further than Kant. Something I find uh, almost charming about the way in which the attempt to say we don't know anything about the objective world actually forces us to presume a few things about the objective world so that we're never in a position where we don't think we know something about it. <laughs> That's kind mm -hmm. of a, it gives me joy to think of that fact. But um, Kant, 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 whatever it is, seems to me was extremely empowering for people because he sort of asks us to undertake a difficult skill building task, which is to pause at this threshold of knowing and not assume that our obvious types of cognition and perception are necessarily evidence of the nature of the world beyond our minds. There's an extraordinary epistemic humility and a beautiful discipline to that, which has been very productive for modern science. But it also seems like it represents or contributed to a, a grave doubt, maybe even a depression about the human capacity to see and touch the world. Um, that that's maybe one of the generators of the meaning crisis, so to speak. But what I think I'm hearing lately what I'm hearing in your book, what I'm hearing in my conversations with John Verveke is what I would describe as a new kind of optimism, a complex intellectual renewal of the confidence that there really is a reality and we really can engage with it because we're part of it and that our inner knowings are reflective of the structure in which we are embedded rather than being some weird solipsistic anthropocentric twilight zone isolated from the rest of reality. Do you do you sense that there's a new confidence about knowing among leading edge thinkers today? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, Kant, in a sense, is doing in a German way what the French were doing in a in a in a French way with the political revolution which had occurred. 
1789, um, Kant is liberating philosophy from certain um, dogmatic forms of knowing, which were too quick to project our own habits and our own um, uh, culturally inherited modes of understanding onto the real and say, well, this is just how it is because that's how my dad told me it is. And that's how his dad told him it was. And Kant didn't actually see himself as um, building a wall between um, the human mind and reality. He wasn't trying to say, you, we just can't do metaphysics. He was trying to inaugurate a new method of metaphysics that would be scientific. Um, <clears throat> And so he didn't intend uh, to lead to this cynical form of postmodern uh, pessimism about what we can know and what's real and the reduction of all knowledge claims to uh, the imposition of some power structure or what have you. But that's, that's, that's what the effect has largely been. And so I do think, yeah, of late that... Um, various thought movements are saying, um, no, we, we can know the real, but not in the way that we thought. <laughs> One of the things that happens in the, in the, the wake of Kant, um, in, in Fichte, who I, who I brought up is, um, <clears throat> that, uh, you know, this dichotomy that's in Kant between practical philosophy and theoretical philosophies is important to understand theoretical knowledge would be more of this sort of passive observation of what's going on. Practical philosophy is more about what we do in the world, um, our action. And one of the ways to interpret what Kant did, and Fichte really makes this quite, quite plain, uh, is that theoretical philosophy becomes um, somewhat derivative of practical philosophy. And so, in other words, um, knowledge is a constructive act it's a it's something we do right it's not just something we have it's something we bring about and so for Fichte, for us to know nature recognizing kant's whole project to show how nature as it appears to us is a kind of construction of our mind uh Fichte said well to get over this boundary between the realm of phenomena how things appear to us and what's real um, we're not going to do it just by contemplating appearances. We're going to actually have to actively transform nature into mind, right? And there's some ways in which the techno-industrial um, remaking of the planet um, that has accelerated, geologists refer to it as the Anthropocene and whatnot, um, this discourse is widespread today. You could see it as um, the Fichtean approach having kind of won out, right? The human being has gone about uh, transforming the earth into something artificial, right? And so it's as if we've stamped our freedom onto the world and 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 uh, claimed ownership over it, and and in so doing, we've known it, but we've known it in a very instrumental way. What? What Schelling does, and Schelling was a student not only of Kant's but of Fichte's, is he he points out the way, and he says this that uh, all modern philosophy lacks a living ground because real nature is not available to it, right? And it it became modern philosophy became so obsessed with the 
the freedom and the power of the mind uh, that it neglected the life of, of nature and which is its own life ultimately. And so mind became kind of ossified. Um, and what Schelling does is, is inverts this Kantian uh, picture, not to deny our freedom, not to deny the power of the mind, but to say, instead of um, what must the mind be such that nature can appear to us in the way that it does, which is the Kantian and the Fichtean question, Schelling says, well, what must nature be such that mind could have emerged from it, such that our unconsciousness uh, could have emerged from it in this evolutionary process? And this, this reconfigures the whole uh, philosophical arena and lets us lets us play a very different game whereby we recognize um, that, you know, nature is this uh, living process and indeed for Schelling a divine process. Uh, and that rather than imagining um, God as, uh, or the, the, the ultimate being as Kant did as a kind of idea of reason that we can't know, but that we're justified in believing in for different moral reasons um, and theoretical reasons. Um, for Schelling, God, rather than just an ideal, becomes something real that's actually present in our experience all the time. We just either, um, well, it's so terrifying and and awesome in, in the sense of terrifying uh, that our habit is to is to cover that perception of the divine ground over um but Schelling says no no um we need to dive into that and recognize that um you know god's not an old man in the sky uh god is a living process that we are um participants within finite participants within though um we're only finite because we're uh, caught up in a process that from God's perspective is eternal, but for us is, is not, um, right. For us, um, there appears to be time and space. Uh, and, and I don't deny that time and space are appearances in, in my book. Um, <clears throat> I rather suggest that, um, time and space rather than being forms of intuition that human minds come pre-installed with time and space are more like, um, the fabric of relationship that binds all creatures together, right? Uh, and so who am I in that process? I become a, a nexus of relations. And while relatively speaking, you know, I am me and you are you, we're constantly passing into and out of one another through space and time. And so space and time become the tissue of our shared organismic feeling as one one body and and in fact ultimately that is god's body and the evolutionary process cosmic evolution is the incarnation of of this of this deity and um you know Schelling allows us to think thoughts like this but it's 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 more an invitation to feel this as a reality right and so there's a there's a deep spiritual practice in here. And I think the optimistic, uh, the upside uh, of all of this is that um, human life has purpose and meaning again, 
we have a role to play in furthering the incarnation of God, if you want. <laughs> and what that what that what that means, I think, is um, I would hope open to a plurality of of different um, approaches. But uh, for me, you know, it means continuing the philosophical quest to to understand, but to recognize that we will never have knowledge. We will just continue to learn. Um, and so you could say descendental philosophy rather than um, as Kant had it with transcendental philosophy, where it was about the conditions of knowledge, the, the, the um, categorical conditions that make knowledge possible. Descendental philosophy is more about the conditions of learning, what makes learning possible, right? And this is the, the processual dimension of descendental philosophy, but it's also the, the aesthetic dimension and it's the spiritual dimension because in effect, God is learning through us. And, you know, it, it, I think opens life up again to be an adventure that really matters. It has ultimate significance uh, what we do, what we think, what we feel, because we're contributing to the growth of this, this organism uh, that we ourselves within. And so, yeah, I hope it's, I hope people find it inspiring and a, a renewed source of purpose and meaning in a world, in a culture that in so many ways tells us that um, all that matters are uh, material sources of, of pleasure money, sex, power, et cetera. Um, nothing wrong with those things, <laughs> but uh, there's, a, there's a larger event unfolding and, and we're participants in that. I'm hearing you say words like us and we a lot. And when I was reading the first half of the book, especially, which I mostly listened to while shoveling snow in the backyard, one of the thoughts that kept coming up for me is, Oh, Matt's trying to introduce intersubjectivity where Kant's just focused on subjectivity. Does that sound reasonable? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, one other thing that came up for me is, so Fichte, Schelling, Hegel are standing before Kant and trying to figure out pathways that move on from the event of his thought. Where is Schopenhauer in all of this? Because he doesn't seem to be mentioned in the volume. Yeah, he's not. You know, I've I've read The World as Will and Representation. And uh, when I read it, I was myself, I was going around <laughs> calling myself a Buddhist um, for all the wrong reasons. Um, and I think Schopenhauer is, he was a troubled soul and he was um, a pessimist. And also he was fucking brilliant. And his challenge to um, all of these fancy idealist professors, and he didn't like any. I mean, he especially hated Hegel. He was he was more uh, amenable to Kant, and in fact, you know, he kind of takes Kant and and reads uh, Kant through Buddhism, and gives a one of the earliest sort of um, Western inflections of Buddhism. It's not Buddhism. It's it's a Western inflection, just like Alan Watts is not really Buddhism. Not that there's anything wrong with, I mean, not really Buddhism. Buddhism can be whatever it wants to be, wherever uh, and whenever it wants to be. Uh, it's a living tradition, right? And I can't really answer why Schopenhauer is not in this text other than to say, um, 
I went with Nietzsche instead. Uh, and I think the, Nietzsche might be a slightly more, well, a way more optimistic thinker in the sense that, you know, for Schopenhauer, um, all of reality is just this sort of accumulation of, of will or, or desire. And there's nothing we can do except, you know, release ourselves from the striving to know because there's nothing to know. And it, it, it's, it ends in a kind of nihilism and there are, I'm sure people who would defend Schopenhauer from, from this, but uh, I preferred to think with Nietzsche just because he is very clearly striving for a, a post nihilist um, relationship to the real. And that's what I'm striving for too. And so I didn't mean to slight Schopenhauer. Again, I think he's brilliant. It just, um, he wasn't uh, a thinking partner that I wanted to dance with in this particular round. Matt, what is imagination? Mm. Well, most people would say, um, just to start with the sort of common definition, that it's this faculty or this power that that we have to um take sensory impressions that we've that we've gathered up from past experience and um rearrange them um we can like take this color red that we really like and um you know sort of detach it from the stop signs that usually display it to us and we can in our imagination um pasted onto uh, a beautiful uh, uh balloon uh and you know so imagination can be can be thought of in this sort of really deflated way as as just uh the capacity to um break down sense perceptions and rearrange them into um fantastical objects um in our mind's eye that is a capacity that we have, but uh, I would I would agree with um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and and say that that's not the full extent of our imaginative capacity. Coleridge would call what I've just described fancy, and he would um, say that imagination, as opposed to fancy, is actually a creative power. It's not just a repro merely reproductive power. In other words, it's reproducing what we've already experienced. But more than that, um, thinkers like Coleridge, and here he's cribbing Schelling, actually, <laughs> literally, um, Coleridge would translate Schelling from German into English and uh, pass it off as his own. <clears throat> Schelling later forgave Coleridge for this, just because he really appreciated the uh, that he'd been understood by an English person. But Coleridge would say that at the in the depths of our imagination, our creative imagination, we're actually participating in a cosmic power and indeed a divine power. So imagination in this higher sense functions as a kind of portal through which we come into contact with and participate in creation, like uh, divine creation, cosmic creation, cosmogenesis, uh, if you want. And so out of imagination, pours um the future forms that that the world can and 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 will take and so it's 
not merely reproductive, right? It's productive, it's creative, um, and it's it's the engine of evolution. And so I, I I want to view imagination not just as a faculty of the human mind, uh, but as the ground of existence in a sense. And we um, partake of this ground of existence, this this divine or cosmic imagination to varying extents. I think we can cultivate uh, our our connection uh, to this to this ground of existence. It's not like uh, we all have. Um, immediate access to its most profound depths, but there's nothing to prevent us from going all the way to the creative core um, by cultivating this imaginative capacity, right? And so it is a, uh, it rather than thinking of it as fantasy that it disconnects us from reality, I think it's only through imagination that we could contact the real. So later in this book, you take a, a deep dive into these considerations of a like the vegetal and organismic nature of reality and cognition. And what kept coming up for me personally was a you know whether or not there's a like a normative dimension to that. And what do I mean? Like Heidegger famously said, we're the beings whose being is in question, right? We're available to our own inquiry about our nature because we have a certain freedom from what we see as the roles and constraints of other species. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're at liberty to do whatever we want. Like if our subjectivity has evolved within a much older biospheric domain of subjectivity, which in turn evolved within and mediates the potential sensitive intelligence of the solar system, then our inner life might have a function within those systems, just as our organs have a functions within our bodies. That real agency might reside in, in the voluntary choice to fulfill a kind of ecological function rather than to deviate from it. And I'm curious how that lands with you. Do you suspect our species has a has like a unique role or normative function within the ecosystem that we might or might not be successfully fulfilling? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if this is part of your question, also, but um, you know, that the, the human has a different role than animals and a different role than plants. And so, why am I saying that that human imagination is plant-like? And what's going on there? And then I'll get back to the responsibility that I think human beings have to wake up to their um, ecological function, as it were. So in the Timaeus, which is Plato's cosmological dialogue, uh, he describes the human being as a, an upside down plant. Um, because just like plants, most plants, we we grow vertically, whereas animals are horizontal, right? And so, but we're inverted. So um, our roots uh our, our heads are um, in the sky, right? And our branches, our limbs grow down to the earth. And I think what Plato was suggesting here is that um, we are nourished by divine ideas, right? And we are um, growing into the earth and that we do have a mission on the earth. It's so Plato is often read as a kind of two worlds dualist who thought we want, we should escape from our bodies into the purity of, of the soul. I, I think that's a misreading of, of Plato. 
uh, all due respect to Nietzsche and, and many others who have read Plato in this way. I think this apparent dualism in Plato's thought is more of a, it serves a pedagogical purpose. Um, he's trying to guide us across the threshold because until we've crossed the threshold, as it were, we might think that we might have the wrong idea about what bodies are. Santa Plato wants to disconnect us from our body. He wants to say uh, that bodies are incarnate ideas, right? So in any event, we're inverted plants, right? Okay, but <clears throat> what, is this, what does this mean practically speaking uh, for us as human beings? And what I, how I would read this is it's, it's an invitation to think about knowledge uh, differently than we have been prone to in the modern period, which is, as I said earlier, kind of instrumentalist approach to knowledge, where it's more about technologically manipulating something. We, we say we know something when we can reverse engineer it um, and build one, right? Well, I know we know what life is when we can build an organism. Um, and as opposed to this sort of instrumentalist understanding of, of knowledge, Plato is, is suggesting that we think of ourselves as, um, as plants and um, plants, unlike animals, aren't as good at um, manipulating their environment. Uh, they're more, they communicate uh, with their environment in, in deep and rich ways. But if we were to plant the human being and recognize that, um, yeah, of course we're mobile and it makes us different from plants, but uh, that mobility might be distracting us from this more rooted sense of of knowing whereby we're always already connected with that which we are attempting to know. We don't need to go get it over there. Um, we don't need to manipulate something in order to turn it into knowledge. Um, that in some sense, um, we're always already at the center of things everywhere we go. And this, you know, Whitehead's understanding of concrescence and what an actual occasion of experience very much speaks to this sense of um, always being at the still center of a universe, which is nonetheless in constant process. But then, you know, in, in terms of, there's more I could say about the whole vegetal um, ontology that is at work in the book, but I want to speak to the other part of your question, which is like the ecological function of the human. I think there's a lot of there's a tendency in contemporary environmental philosophy and environmental ethics to really um, rail against anthropocentrism. Uh, and rightly so, I think there's a certain kind of anthropocentrism that puts a diminished sense of what the human being is at the center of everything, as though we're the apex predator. And so um, all of the earth's resources and all of the earth's organisms should be um, harvested for our pleasure. That form of anthropocentrism does need to be um, challenged, but I think there's a, a higher sense in which if that the human being is is the consciousness of the earth, um, and that unless we become responsible for the power that we have, and unless we live up to our potential. Uh, as participants in cosmic imagination, what makes the human unique, I, I would say, is that we can participate with full consciousness because we have freely decided to, uh, whereas there's no freedom in the behavior of 
other organisms. I'm not saying they're not all creative and wonderful uh, and, and capable of novelty. I think freedom is something different. Um, it's in human beings that freedom and the capacity to love become possible. And unless we recognize this unique difference about the human being and live up to this higher calling, then we'll continue to think of ourselves as just another animal. And if we're just another animal, then fuck yeah, we're the apex predator. This earth belongs to us and we're going to do whatever we want with it. But if, if we're able to become conscious of our power and freely choose to be beings of love, then I think the earth community um, would, would welcome our presence. And um, this, this is a, you know, a nuanced point, right? Because we're decentering uh, a less developed understanding of what the human being is, absolutely, but we're recentering our spiritual uh, potential and saying that, you know, we really do need to wake up and take responsibility for who and what we are. The earth actually wants and needs us to do that and, and stop with this sort of cynical, like, oh, well, everything would be better if human beings just weren't here. Because I don't think that's true. So, yeah. In an oversimplified way, if you, if you take Kant's and you add in Schelling and relativity theory and quantum mechanics, then maybe you get something like Whitehead. What does Deleuze bring in that isn't already in Whitehead? <laughs> so, you know, Whitehead is in so many ways um, kind of Victorian in his, uh, his, the mood that comes through in his writing. Whereas uh, Deleuze is a bit of a chaos agent. Um, and I, if Kant is the guardian of the threshold of um, sort of representing modern philosophy, Deleuze is the guardian of the threshold representing postmodern philosophy. And I think I'm really trying to not only go through Kantian, the Kantian critical phase of philosophy, but also to go through the, the postmodern phase of the development of philosophy. And so this is the same reason I think with Nietzsche is um, at play when I think with Deleuze. And the benefit of Deleuze is that he himself inherited and digested both Schelling and Whitehead's philosophies. And I, I treat him um, as a uh, someone to think with because of just how damn creative he is. And, you know, in this text, as someone who's not a mathematician, who's not a physicist, I'm nonetheless trying to engage with um, some of the, the, the concepts at play in um, relativity, quantum theory, and, and the development of non-Euclidean geometries, um, which allow us to gain a foothold in our scientific study of space and time and whatnot. And Deleuze has this wonderful notion that, you know, philosophy in some sense is, is a kind of science fiction writing. Um, and that, you know, Deleuze would engage with the history of mathematics and uh, with different scientific concepts. And um, he had deep understanding of, of these scientific concepts, but he's trying to not, and he's not just using them as metaphors, but he's trying to get at the, um, the metaphysical underbelly of these 
concepts from physical science. And I'm trying to do something similar. And so I, I couldn't help um, but um, appropriate his methodology here, right? I say in the beginning of the book that I'm engaged in a kind of science fiction. And he also says that philosophy is a, is like a kind of detective novel, which similarly, you know, in my attempt to, to follow the way that imagination has been treated and mistreated um, by modern philosophers, uh, it's a, I, I refer to it as a, an attempt to, to, to understand this murder mystery of imagicide. Uh, why why did modern philosophers feel the need to so violently restrain this this creative power right and so um Deleuze is, is hip to all these things and so I couldn't help but um um emulate his method on the other hand Deleuze is also um more prone to a kind of um atheism or pantheism uh I mean he's he's like Spinoza in that sense that, um, you know, even though Spinoza was clearly a pantheist, he would often get called an atheist because uh, God and nature are the same thing, right? And I, I try to think with and and through, but beyond Deleuze also, because uh, rather than an atheism or pantheism, um, I really do try to articulate uh, panentheism, which is just a, you know, higher octave of the um, the dialectical process here. Um, but I, I want to be able to, without embarrassment, you know, use the G word uh, and, and think about liturgy and ritual uh, and prayer and all these things that get packaged in, in the suitcase of religion and say, hey, this is all still relevant. And Deleuze, maybe more so Deleuzeans nowadays might, might scoff at that whole project. Um, so uh, as much as I do draw upon him, I also try to do something a little bit differently than he might. Well, speaking of science fiction, I know Roger Penrose has this really intriguing notion that like time's definition in the physical universe ceases to apply under certain special entropy conditions, at which point the universe can't tell the beginning from the end of time and it starts again with maybe some uh, slight residual effects on the descendant universe. And a bit like that, you have this para-Whiteheadian notion of different world souls that might hold sway over different cosmic epochs in which the community of ontological beings invents their common intelligence and common divinized potential differently. Is that right? Yes. And yes, so this is um, actually a an amendment or uh, a creative extension of, of Whitehead's idea of um, what he calls cosmic epochs. But in Whitehead's philosophy, so far as I can tell the way it's written, different cosmic epochs uh, or sort of evolutionary phases of creation and destruction where a totally new um, form of order displaces the old form of order. So it's as if you're in a different universe. Um, Whitehead would still say that God, the primordial nature of God, has remains unchanged throughout this process of uh, different cosmic epochs um, arising and and perishing. And because I'm in dialogue with you know like Deleuze and Nietzsche, I wanted I needed to make some concessions somewhere about Whitehead's theology, and so 
I, I play with this idea that, okay, maybe God does die uh, as each cosmic epoch or phase of cosmic order reaches its cl climax and, and then begins to wither away. God dies with it, but uh, God is also reborn as this, uh, you know, Penrose refers to it as the um, cyclic cosmology, that there is this, there are cycles of death and rebirth. And in a Dionysian way, God's going through this. And is it many gods or is it a lineage of gods, a kind of God family? Is there kinship, some inheritance preserved as we move from one cosmic epoch to the next? And I think, you know, embedded within one of these cosmic epochs, um, such as we are, there's so much beauty and order. There seems to be something happening here. And for all of that to just have emerged from scratch at the Big Bang uh, seems uh, rather unlikely to me. And so I'm speculating in, in, in this book that um, something like what Penrose is describing is going on. Um, Lee Smolin has a similar idea about black holes giving birth to new universes when there's a kind of evolutionary process whereby organizational tricks that worked in one universe are preserved and advanced upon in the next universe. And, you know, so I'm just trying to expand a kind of evolutionary thinking to the cosmos as a whole while retaining aspects of Whitehead's process theology, but just um, not allowing this primordial nature of God, which is a key category in Whitehead's uh, scheme to remain fixed and eternal as if disconnected from all of this cosmic process that, that's going on. I want God to die with the world, but, you know, also to be reborn, but God going through the threshold of death, I think is perfectly in line with um, various religious and mythic traditions or Christianity, obviously. And so, you know, there's a way in which even Nietzsche and his sense that God is dead is just Nietzsche trying to really um, give more potency to this incarnational idea. Yeah, God died, but um, in some sense that that just means that we, God died into us and like now we are responsible for continuing this work of divine creation, right? And so, um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what cosmologists will think of this idea. I don't know what theologians will think of this idea, but um, I'll probably upset everybody equally. I, I want to say my my least well formulated question. Uh, I'm not even sure exactly what I'm trying to ask with this, but I'm going to try to ask it anyway and see if anything happens. Um, there's an apocryphal tale about Wittgenstein uh, that he asked a scientist why people used to believe the sun went around the earth. And the scientist said, that's the obvious conclusion to draw because that's how it looks. And Wittgenstein said, well, how would it look if the earth went around the sun? So, of course, it would be the same. We can't just tell ourselves a story about getting over naivete. We have to interrogate our assumptions about what constitutes conventional knowledge itself. And this popped into my head reading the book because I began to wonder if the um, etheric imagination, vegetal thinking, whether these things constitute a reversal of how we normally see the world or whether they're an articulation of how we normally see the world. Right. When is it valid to say descendental thinking is a shift beyond something? And when is it valid to say, well, that's how it looked all along, regardless of what we were saying? Does that make any sense? 
<laughs> yeah, it does. And I, I I think that's not actually an apocryphal story that um that this is a conversation that one of uh, Wittgenstein's students, uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, records. And you know, it's it's a thought-provoking um response from and question from Wittgenstein. And I think what I'm trying to do in in this book is actually um do justice to common sense. Like I'm not trying to affront common sense. I'm not trying because there's so many ways in which the Kantian point of view and the whole idealist point of view is like um saying everything you thought was real is is an appearance, right? Um, and and is a mirage, and you need to adopt this very technical form of um, uh, critical reflection upon your experience to recognize that it's a sham and uh, to begin the long, arduous process to a truly scientific way of, of experiencing and, and understanding the world. And, you know, it's not that um, there isn't some importance to being um, attuned to the ways we can deceive ourselves. But at the end of the day, we don't want to negate common sense. Um, we need to, I mean, Whitehead says the philosopher's job is to weld imagination and common sense, right? And so there's the speculative imagination that wants to go beyond first appearances, but we also need to at the end of the day, we return to our everyday encounter with the world and and find it meaningful rather than denying that it is in contact with uh, with the ground of of being uh, of existence. And so, yeah, I think we want the world as it immediately appears to us uh, to contain within that appearance a profound meaning. Right, rather than it just being a veil, uh, that in some sense, you know, the 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 elemental structure of our everyday experience. While we uh, we, we we tend not to notice that elemental structure because it's um, in a way it's too obvious. It's it's too close to our eyes that we just see past it. Uh, but there's a there's a profound meaning just in the fact that up is up and down is down. That this like that that we live on the earth beneath the sky, and to really take in, um, it's it's a kind of elemental phenomenology. I, I draw on John Salas um, in a short chapter in this text, who has written some beautiful texts on um, the phenomenology of our encounter with these what he calls elements: the sky, the earth, the horizon, the sea. <clears throat> these sort of natural powers that 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 are present in every like air, the, the things that are present in our everyday experience that we just don't notice. You know, Whitehead similarly says that it takes a rather unordinary mind to do metaphysics because metaphysics is an analysis of the obvious, right? All the things that we take for granted. And so rather than philosophy being this uh, esoteric pursuit of some hidden secret truths uh, in so many ways, it's really just about paying attention to what everybody already knows. I like this idea that the philosopher is trying to weld imagination with common sense. I think you mentioned in the book that Whitehead also called the philosopher a critic of cosmologies. Uh, I sometimes call philosophers difference workers who are like sex workers who specialize in determining whether a common distinction is unreal or whether a seemingly singular concept 
conceals the need for an additional distinction. Uh, Nietzsche kind of described the philosopher as a commander of worldviews who discovers new values by making new arrangements and new orderings of the virtues. Um, what's the Matt Seagal take? What's a philosopher, Matt? I mean, I can't do better than uh, <laughs> than Plato here. And <laughs> even having created the term lover of wisdom, um, because, you know, as I was saying earlier about this shift from philosophy being about knowledge to being about learning, I think it's it's contained in this idea that despite Hegel's claim, you know, to have finally become wise and no longer just be loving uh, wisdom, he is wisdom. I think that's, you know, he's claiming to be a sage. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim that. I would claim to be in love with wisdom and to be in love with wisdom is um, to be engrossed in a, in a process of learning uh, and every, every conversation with other lovers of wisdom uh, is an opportunity to deepen learning. And so I think, yeah, for me to be a philosopher is uh, to never be satisfied um, with the knowledge I might think I, I've collected in my in my backpack. Like um, it's it's rather to be uh, perpetually open to surprise and to uh, the the novelty that comes through um, relationship, uh, the novelty that that comes through being always open uh, to to deep dialogue across difference and to recognize, I mean, I, it's kind of a faith, I guess, that I have that um, differences can always be reconciled, but never once and for all, there will always be new differences which arise that need to be reconciled, uh, but that they can be reconciled. I, I think as long as we are in love with wisdom, that reconciliation can be achieved uh and it's a philosophical faith right that would um that that i that i hold that leads me to believe that but i definitely see the the the, the philosopher is not a lone ranger um not only do we do i need uh, my fellow philosophers uh, they're human beings but um there's something to be learned from every creature uh, something to be learned from plants. There's something to be learned from a specific species of, of plant. I don't want to just use a sort of generic category here. Um, really, there's no such thing as plants and animals. There's like specific individual beings that we categorize in these ways, right? Um, it's easier to come up with a generic category for plants and animals. And even the, the, the idea of a species is still a... Um, an abstract categorization of individuals, each one unique. But many thinkers from Teilhard de Chardin to Rudolf Steiner have said, um, the human being isn't just another species, we're like another kingdom of life, uh, right? And so I think the philosophical project is a uniquely human undertaking, even if we human beings have much to learn from other creatures. Uh, there's a sense in which, um, there will always be a multitude of cosmologies and that I don't expect uh, to have the final word on the right cosmology, right? Because each of us is a walking cosmos, a microcosm. And it's, it's through dialogue that we uh, come to come to overlap 
to some degree or another and, and arrive at some common sense of uh, or for what's what's going on here. Uh, but yeah, it's an endless process. So that's why I'm a process philosopher, I guess. The possibility of deep differences amongst plants puts me in mind of plant medicine. And it leads me to a question that's a bit like, uh, okay, we've got this uh, dialogue network of philosophers. We have these love-driven or seduced followers of wisdom trying to reconcile positions and elicit the forms of knowing which have the force of being. But it seems like most people are not capable of or interested in doing real mind work in that sense. What do you think the role of other other technologies are? Art, neurochemistry, psychedelics, participatory ritual in bringing many people into the embodied relational contemplation of the real. Mm. Well, I mean, I think immediately of the um, Platonic Trinity, the the true, the good, and the beautiful, and those who do mind work, who, who fashion concepts, you know, we're really oriented towards the truth, you could say, but the good and the beautiful uh, are um, co-terminus with the absolute. <laughs> and so artists who, you know, work with material uh, to bring, to bring new shapes and sounds, um, textures into the world, uh, are are engaging in cosmic imagination just as much, if if not in some ways more so than those of us who work with with concepts, um, and you know those who are oriented toward uh, compassionate work in in service uh, of of sentient beings uh, who suffer, um, you know, are aligning with the good and in this way also advancing uh, the work of cosmic imagination, and so. You know, in proper integral spirit, I think you know those of us who do have more facility or who are just more called to one or another aspect of this trinity really do. We do need each other, and we do need to attempt to balance ourselves out. Um, you know, and so I can speak personally that uh, I'm still seeking that balance. Um, I really do need to uh, cultivate more um, artisanal skills as a as a craft a craftsman right and I, I kind of long for this because it's a underdeveloped part of myself right and so you know for those for whom um, the conceptual realm and is not as as developed and for whom um, books of philosophy are, are the last thing that they'd ever want to to read, whether they just find it boring or um, can't make sense of it, you know, I would say um, you do have the capacity to think, uh, and um, you just need to let your eyes adjust to what might first appear to be darkness, and you'll begin to see uh, the contours of these concepts. So, you know, we just we need to. Uh, recognize that inevitably there are differences in capacities across these domains of human expression and uh, and try to you know grow into those areas where we're underdeveloped right and so I'm, I certainly don't think of the work of the philosopher uh, as um, 
as most important uh, in any sense. Philosophers need art to provoke them. Philosophers need uh, virtuous people to um, emulate. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I hope uh, that being a philosopher is is not um, you know absent the pursuit of excellence in these other domains as well. So. Other than simply being done, what are you proudest about in regards to this book? I'm proudest of um, my complete <laughs> lack of respect for disciplinary boundaries. It's it's a wild uh, text uh, that transgresses the uh, science and religion dichotomy that uh, transgresses um methodologies. Um, you know, I, I try to be rigorous in my thinking, but I also try to say, hey, you're not going to understand this unless you're willing to feel what I'm talking about. And most philosophical texts um, just stick to conceptual argumentation. And I say right at the beginning of the book, this is not a logical argument. I'm not going to prove anything to you. Uh, this is an experiment. And I think we need more philosophy like that. And I hope that um, this this can serve as, as an example uh, to, to be improved upon. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm committed to transdisciplinary work and I'm um, proud of the way in which this book cannot be at least easily um, categorized. Yeah, there's something in it for everybody and something in it that will I, I, I don't expect that any readers, even those who love a lot of it, will agree with everything. I think I tried to be equally uh, provocative, uh, both to academic philosophers, to scientists, to yeah, cult practitioners. So, yeah. Is there a, is there a next text on the horizon? Is there a further reaches of the etheric imagination or? What are you looking forward to doing creatively? It's it's hard to say um, what's next because, you know, I have, I can tell you about my plans, but knowing how things have unfolded in the past, um, what I plan to write is often not what I end up writing. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been um, deepening into the work of Rudolf Steiner and um, I do includes some of his ideas in this text, but I'm really interested in trying to um, write a book about something like the the place of the human being in um, cosmic evolution. And I think the title I, I'm playing with is The Cosmological Context of Human Evolution. And to try to um, integrate the very esoteric and often um, mind-blowing, crazy-sounding ideas that Steiner comes up with, with Whitehead, who is more grounded in um, natural science. Not that Steiner is not grounded in, in the sciences, but um, I think Whitehead's cosmology provides some helpful ways of elucidating what in Steiner remains somewhat esoteric and obscure. And so I'm, I'm I'm hoping to be able to unpack some of the connections I see between their thought uh, and really bring two very different communities together um, 
anthroposophists and uh, academic philosophers, um, though, you know, those interested in Whitehead among the academic philosophers are a strange enough breed that they might be open to this sort of uh, attempted synthesis. So that's what I'm planning to move towards in terms of a next book, but um, don't hold me to it. We'll see what happens. Okay. This has been uh, lovely and fun and um, intellectually challenging. Thanks very much for having this conversation with us, Matt. My pleasure, uh, Layman. You're very good at what you do, and it's uh, always uh, wonderful to be in dialogue with you. So thank you. <laughs>